This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome back to the WOMED. Um, Danny and I are so excited. I know we say that all the time, but we keep having such amazing women on the podcast. But we are speaking with Leilani Graham, and I cannot wait to hear about her story. <laughs> it's pretty Le- intense. <laughs> Leilani has one of the craziest stories I think I've ever heard. And yeah. one of the things that makes her so special is that she was a follower of mine and like kind of pimped herself out. It was totally basically did. like, you did. <laughs> and you were like, I have a good story. And you know, like you, we've got, we've had a lot of people tell us that and it's hard to like keep up with everyone. But when you sent me that podcast that you were on and I listened to it, I couldn't stop listening to it. I listened to it like three times, of course. So it's like, it's fantastic. And it's, very obvious that you're extremely intelligent and you've been through the ringer with all of your health issues. And how many times have you technically lost a pulse in your life? Mm, That's a great question. I think I'm at either five or six. Depends if you count bradycardia. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I was like crazy. (laughs) It's just, it's honestly crazy. So I can't wait to, to talk to you about this. And uh, so Leilani is now after all of her health issues, which we will get into is now a patient advocate and has a great story. Um, and I, I'm really hoping to learn from you about how I can better care with the heart transplant patients that I take care of, because awesome. I have a lot of patients yeah. that are your age. I have a lot of patients that are not your age that are getting I'm heart sure. transplants, but there are many that are your age. So, or were your age at the time. How old are you again now? So I'm 27 and I had the transplant at 24. Okay. All right. Cool. Crazy. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I don't know if you've um, listened to us too much, but we uh, usually start out every episode, unless we forget about it till the very end, but with a (laughs) lubrication question just to kind of get us all warmed up. So today's lubrication question is, what is the last text you sent? Oh, that's a good question. I have to look at it. Mine's you can pretty skip, funny. You can skip <laughs> skip mine. Skip mine, Leilani. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> mine are boring. Got it. Um, I sent a happy birthday bitmoji to my best friend. Aww. Ooh, that's so sweet. I know. Very we're getting nice later. Oh, so, very nice. <laughs> All right, Danny, what was yours? 
I just hate that yours is going to be so much better because it always. That's why I'm saving it so for the more. end. I know, I know, I know. That's why you asked me. So, I mean, mine, mine was a little bit of a conversation between me and my life partner, as we call each other. Uh, I said, I said, my grandpa used to call my grandma the queen bee, and he said, my car is the queen bee. Sorry, boo. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that's so much more interesting than mine. (laughs) Yeah, so that's it. So a little background on my text. Um, I'm in a girl chat with, uh, oh my God, I don't know how many girls are on here now. It's probably like 15. And one of the girls in the chat sent... um, this like screenshot about how Tyler C and Gigi Hadid are like following each other on Instagram now. <laughs> so my last text is also I feel bad Gigi can date who she wants because I may have tweeted or I may have <laughs> <laughs> said earlier in the chat you can have anyone stay out of the bachelor pool. <laughs> I swear I have. <laughs> I just don't know what's going on in life, honestly. Like, I know who Gigi Hadid is, but I don't know who that other guy is. Um, yeah, he either. is like, thank you. <laughs> real, he's, and I watched The Bachelor, so I don't. <laughs> he is in Hannah's top four, and he's like Noah from The Notebook. He's like hot Ooh. and like sweet and tender. So, oh my gosh. Ooh. Okay, I haven't watched this season, <clears throat> admittedly. <laughs> but he's also okay. like twenty-seven, so. Like, it's kind of young for me. <laughs> well, never say never. It's okay. Dee's, Dee's one of my, my close friends now since we've been working together, and I've never even seen – I've seen, like, five episodes of The Bachelor ever. But if she were it's to go fun. back on, I would watch. <laughs> so don't worry That's about true that. true friendship support right there. Yes, absolutely. Have absolutely. a watch party. Do it all. Yes. <laughs> all right, Danny. How the Tata's feeling? Uh, this month they're feeling a little smaller than last month, which is no problem because my third love bra and it's, uh, foam cups mold right to my tatas. Oh my and God. The straps, so amazing. the straps just still don't slip. So I'm still loving my third love bra. And Doesn't how many matter. months have we had them now? Gosh, like normally I, I feel like they'd stretch out a little bit, but like, nope. no, they don't. They're nope. amazing. They are. We have uh, surpassed the return time, but if you, you know, but order I don't want to return bra, it. No, I'm never. I'm never returning mine. But no. if you order your third love bra, and you decide you don't like it, I could have returned it within sixty days, which I'm not going to do. But but they would have donated it to a woman in need, which is super freaking cool. That's like my favorite part of the company. Me too. But I digress. It's so easy to buy them. You go to the website, you go to thirdlove.com, and you can take the Fit Finder quiz, which is fun, and it's easy, and you don't have any issues with, like, awkward dressing rooms and that lady coming in and being like, hi, do you need me to measure you? So <laughs> let me True. tell this bra fits. God, I like, hate buying bras in I don't want you to look at my chest, you know? Yes. I hate buying bras in stores. No, you don't have to so difficult. So if you want to go check it out, have no more awkward fitting room experiences, go to thirdlove.com slash WOMED right now and find your perfect fitting bra and you can get 15% off on us. That's right. That's thirdlove.com slash WOMED for 15% off your first purchase. Embrace your tatas. Yes. Ah, mm. 
the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Okay, well, now that we've gotten that off of our chest, uh, Leilani, do you just want to start and, like, tell us a little bit of background on yourself and, like, kind of uh, summarize that podcast into, you know, a few minutes? <laughs> or don't. Sure. Right? No problem. <laughs> or tell just tell story. Yeah. yeah, tell us. Tell us how you want your story to come across. Oh, boy. No pressure. Um, yeah, so I guess I should start at the beginning, which is that uh, when I was 13 years old, I was running on a treadmill and went into my first cardiac arrest, um, with like no prior family history. You know, I was really athletic, like did all the sports. Mm -hmm. Um, and it turns out that I was diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, which you guys know, but it's basically the left ventricle is too thick. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the time I remember like my, the doctor that diagnosed me came out and told my dad, he said, you're really lucky. This is usually diagnosed on the coroner's table. Um, because oh for most young athletes, like that's what happens is they drop on the football field. Yeah. Um, or like basketball field or, or basketball court yeah. or something that you always hear about exactly. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we still really don't know why I survived the first one, but like it was a cut and dry diagnosis after that. Um, and I had a defibrillator implanted, ended up having three more cardiac arrests, um, before the time I turned 21, uh, most were exercise induced. Um, so one was like running around a track when I was just after I was diagnosed, cause we didn't know my limitations. Like I'd been doing all Mm -hmm. these sports. And so I was like, Oh, I'm sure I can just, you know, maybe not run the mile, but I'll just do a lap. And that was Mm -hmm. too much. Um, the second time I may have been trespassing on a construction site when I was 16 <laughs> with a bunch of friends. That's what you do when you're 16. Yep. Um, and then the third time I was living in New York, actually, I was going to NYU and um, I just hit the floor um, on 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. Um, and at that point, we decided like, okay, maybe I should move back to California and ended up uh, finishing out school out here. And, you know, was just ready to start a new job. But like, you know, over those 10 years or so, my heart function had been slowly declining, but it was such a slow decline that it was, it wasn't something that I really noticed because I was just like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to stop dancing because that feels really uncomfortable and I'm getting the crushing chest pains and whatnot. And you know, I won't do the stairs anymore at the office because I just feel sick afterwards. Um, and so it was sort of that like ignorance is bliss conundrum of because I was living it every day, I didn't really notice, um, you know, how sick I was. And I basically, you know, started a brand new job. And two weeks later, my cardiologist whom I've had for like eight years prior sat me down and said, we really need to start talking about listing you for transplant. Um, and at that point, like I knew it was on the table for people with HCM. I knew it happened. Um, but I was really the only one that I knew of who was so young that even had HCM in a defibrillator. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the concept of transplant, like never had crossed my mind before that. Um, and then I was listed pretty quickly, uh, cause part of the problem, and they've changed this a little bit now with, with UNOS, um, which is the United Network for Organ Sharing. They have like a whole 
bylines that govern the country. Um, but with HCM, like there weren't any other options. Like I couldn't get a mechanical valve. I couldn't, um, be put on like IV medication. Uh, and I had a really pretty rare blood type. Um, so I was listed, I was on the list for about four months, um, working most of the time. Cause again, it was that ignorance is bliss of like, I just got this new job and like, I can't yeah. stop my life for this. And, right. yeah. um, can I, inter- bit- can I ask you one yeah. question? Maybe two it. questions. Uh, one, what was your blood? What is your blood type? B negative. Oh, okay. Interesting. And two, um, do you think this, uh, I'm B positive actually. Yeah. Do you, what are you, what are you? I'm B neg. Oh, you are? Oh my yeah. God. Same. B club. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my other question is, do you think this, this ignorance was kind of like medicine to you in a way or ignorance slash, I don't know that it was really denial, but do you think it had any way of like, uh, just pushing you forward sort of thing or totally I th- or not? Yeah. Okay. No, okay. I think so. I was just I th- curious. I think- I think it's twofold. Like I had a naivete of medicine because I came from an arts background. I was, mm-hmm. I liked science, but I never really, I trusted my team so much that I didn't take the initiative to like do much with my care besides being super compliant and really communicative. Um, but I never questioned it. Well, that's means you have a great team, honestly. Yeah, I think true because otherwise I, I'd be worried about it all the time, you know, and not living, yeah. but anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Continue on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. And part of it was just like, it was, it was the, the timing and then like the lack of being able to do any other intervention, which like bumped me up the list. Um, and yeah, so then I, I was listed, I was on the list for about four months and, um, about three weeks before the call, things had started to kind of go downhill. Like the beta blockers weren't working as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I started noticing a difference. Cause I was sleeping like 13 hours a day, always felt tired. Um, and I found out, you know, after the transplant, my team was like, yeah, we weren't sure if you had another cardiac arrest, if, if the defibrillator would bring you back um, during that time. So I got the call for transplant and I basically like, of course I was within the four hour range, but I was, cause that's how close you have to stay to the hospital. And I was three and a half hours away. (laughs) So we like, Oh my God. Get all our stuff, like throw the dogs in the car, you know, like my parents are running around and, um, you know, book it to the hospital. And I basically walked in the front door by myself, uh, which is pretty unusual for, for pre-transplant. I think a lot of my friends have either like been in the hospital in the ICU. Um, but I just sort of like walked in in my flip flops and was like, hi, I'm here for, I'm here for my heart. (laughs) I'm here for my my organ exchange. (laughs) Yeah. It was like so bizarre. Like the security guard didn't even know where to send me. (laughs) He's probably Um, like, what? Wait, I mean, um, okay. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, did you mean the ER? It's on the other side. I was like, I don't think so. Um, Yeah. And then like first 24 hours, everything went great. Simple six hour surgery. Um, you know, it was once described to me by that cardiologist as just swapping out the plumbing, um, which is like not totally incorrect. Right. It's like sort of one of the more simple. It's, it's, Um, it's, it's honestly like very correct. Like I've, have you ever watched one in the OR, uh, a heart transplant? You. Uh -uh. You totally should sometime. I'm sure you could, I'm sure your old team could get you in, but it's like one of the coolest things. And it, Although it's not simplistic at all, you're kind of like, dang, that's actually like more simple than like a triple valve replacement with a cabbage or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's, it's wild, but anyway. 
Yeah. So, um, very cool. Yeah. And so like we thought everything was like smooth sailing and then, uh, like t- almost 24 hours after the surgery, it totally coded, um, in the ICU and they couldn't figure out why, you know, uh, my beats per minute was about 10. And so CPR in the ICU broke a couple ribs and, you know, they brought me back under. And at that point I do remember that. Like once I regained consciousness and was wheeled back into the OR, cause I was so confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up putting in an ECMO, um, because they had just oh, really? figured out what was going on. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were on, how long were you on ECMO? Well, I was on it for about a day before they realized it wasn't cannulated properly. Um, uh. so I, like, puffed up, like you couldn't see any definition in my hands and they went back in, recannulated it, and then I was on it for t- about 10 days total. Oh my gosh. That wasn't mentioned in the podcast, I don't think, was it? That you were on ECMO? No, we didn't really have time to get into it on that podcast, but holy yeah. crap. And I was- so Oh, go ahead. Oh no, it was just going to say, um, I was one of the first patients at my center that they kept conscious for all of that. Oh, really? Dang. That's amazing. Did you post when you coded or when you had your bradycardic arrest, were you, did you have pacing wires? Were you not paced after surgery? I don't think I was. Okay. I was just curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just curious if you had any wires, but wow, that's crazy. So you were awake Mm -hmm. on ECMO. Mm-hmm. Uh, post transplant for ten days. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So there That's you are. So crazy. Um, yeah. Because <clears throat> like in in the NICU, we always have our babies are always snowed, and like now they're mm-hmm. um starting to take a little bit more of no, they can like move a little as long as they're not reaching up and like grabbing at their cannulas. But mm-hmm. I was just so surprised that like they'll have like adults walking around on ECMO and stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, are you sure? That doesn't um, seem like a smart idea, but <laughs> it okay. works though. I- I'm yeah. assuming. I'm assuming you were VA ECMO. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awake yeah. on VA ECMO is something I've never seen before. Honestly. Yeah. God, what did that I've feel had friends like? on VV who can you know get up and ride yep. an exercise bike and yep. um the the sucky thing about VA was that like I was couldn't move. Um, like I would move an inch and the machine would go, wah, wah, and then yeah, the tech yeah. would look at me and be like, stop doing that. Um, <laughs> and like you try and lay still for 10 freaking days, dude. Exactly. Like I would like to sit up now. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so I lost, you know, tons of muscle definition and had to learn how to walk again. And, um, oh. All of that. So that part was pretty terrible. I mean, I was on some real good drugs when I was on ECMO. Um, so that part, I don't remember being so terrible, but because of being on so much pain medication and then, you know, being awake and whatnot, when they did finally take the ECMO out um, on Valentine's Day, ironically, uh, <laughs> I had delusions for three days after. Yeah. You were I was going to ask you. Meds. Mm-hmm. So that was Dude. That was probably scarier than being on ECMO frankly. Wow. Wow. My God. So how did it go? How did the rest of your hospital stay go from there after being on ECMO? Definitely roller coastery developed, you know, aspirated necrotizing pneumonia, um, Mm. you know, had a possible, like, I think a month after I got out of the hospital, they thought that they had clipped the tricuspid in a biopsy because I was having severe regurge. Um, 
So then they were like, okay, well, we'll wait four months for you to heal up and then we'll go back in open heart and replace the valve. And I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like how many times do you need to open up my chest? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, fortunately that oh. resolved. We think it was just like, maybe it got overloaded, um, while on ECMO, but yeah, recovery was rough for that year. I mean, I had super severe type two from prednisone, mm-hmm. um, and I'd never been diabetic before. So that was a huge change. Yeah. Um, you know, about eight months out, the pneumonia had pretty much resolved. Um, heart was looking better and I started running cause I hadn't done that in like 10 years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my first 5k, I was feeling some pain in my knee. So I went to, you know, my GP and she was like, you know what, it's probably just, you haven't done this bef- in a long time, or maybe it's a meniscal tear. And I was like, yeah, I really feel like I need an MRI. And I, I actually talked to a friend of mine who was a retired PT and she said, you know, that's usually what they tell you because they don't want to have to waste costs on MRI if it's something that's not surgical. Um, and it turned out once we had the MRI done that I have, uh, severe osteonecrosis in both knees and my ankle also from being on prednisone. So I saw an orthopedist and he was like, yeah, you should stop running now. Otherwise you're going to need knee replacements in five years. Oh my God. And I'm like, I would really love to keep my body parts. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's a noom dawn. It's a noom day. It's a noom life. That's correct. I, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> it is. Noom. How's, how's noom going for you, D? Noom has actually been going really awesome. Besides the fact that I love to break whatever like step goal that they give me every day because I just like to walk and like walk really fast. It's been helping me out with my diet because they really focus on like you trying to make conscious change it like habit changes uh, when it comes to food. And I actually just got home from Wisconsin and I spent a week up there with my family. It was great, wonderful, but every meal is so meat heavy. And I didn't realize how much I actually wasn't in taking so much like animal protein. And so when I got home, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? What's a healthier protein alternative? So I went grocery shopping. I got some tempeh and like it, I, my body just feels better just making like those healthier choices. It's all about balance. Yes. For sure. And uh, helping with the balance. They're the best when it comes to integrating this into your current lifestyle. So like you and I both travel a fair amount. So I think it's super helpful and uh, for me, this last couple weeks, as far as noom and exercise, I've had like a wake up call because I've been traveling too. So I started something I never thought I would start in the most minimal way possible, but I'm still giving myself credit. And that is drum roll. Yes, that is yoga. Woo! And I've been doing I've been doing ten to twenty minutes because noom only asks you to give ten minutes of your time to them a day. So I've been doing um, yoga stretches. I did them. I did them every day after work last week. I've done them I'm today so already. Proud of you. Yeah, I think it's helping me, and I actually like have started feeling like hoping that there's more coming. So, uh, so I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going. Good. So, so I am pretty impressed so far. I'm Noom so is, impressed. Noom is working out for us right now. So, yes. <laughs> so if you want to try it out and see how much it can work for you, go to Noom dot com slash womed and sign up for your free trial today. 
Yeah, you can get the free trial, which is what we started up with too. Uh, and I'm going to keep you... going with it. Oh, absolutely. We both are. We're both still going with it. But if you would like to try the free free trial, go to Noom, that's N-O-O-M.com slash WOMED. Take it home, D. There's Noom reason not to try it. That's right. Go to Noom.com slash WOMED for your free trial. So when did the situation come in with, uh, do, do you have a, wait, do you have a pacemaker now? Yes. Okay. Right. So when did, when that. did that all come? Yeah. <laughs> when did that all come to fruition? So that was, uh, exactly one year later. I was on my anniversary date. I was like up, um, in sort of like a Napa area, um, with my family and I was sitting on the couch and it was, it was kind of creepy cause it was almost like exactly the same time I think that I coded, um, oh, wow. and just totally passed out, uh, and like sort of felt like it was a seizure almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it took us about five months to diagnose it. You know, everything from cardiac MRI, EP study, uh, angios, biopsies, you know, everything under the sun. Um, and we couldn't figure it out, but I had passed out once or twice again. And finally we put in a loop recorder. Um, and about six days after that, like the stereo strips were still on and I passed out again and they were like, Oh, textbook, complete heart block. What um, the heck? Oh my God. Yeah. So at that yes. point <laughs> I was like, what is this life? <laughs> were you like insanely depressed? Yeah, I definitely struggled with depression, anxiety, also just, you know, I had been so um so naive up until the transplant that it was not only was the gravity of what had happened to me hitting, but it was also yeah. the gravity that I had even been dying and was maybe dying again and mm. you know, had never really felt like a chronic patient before and now my whole yeah. life was just about trying to stay alive. Oh my gosh, that's Honestly, couldn't imagine. I I look at transplant patients sometimes and I wonder what they think. I, I mean, I've had some say to me, I felt better before the transplant. You know, like yeah. all these meds I'm taking make me feel terrible. I feel like I can't even live my life and I'm bankrupting my family, you know, mm-hmm. um, spending all this money. And sometimes I, you know, I I wonder like if it's the best decision for some people or whatever, but hindsight's 2020. You just, you never know what's going to happen. I feel like sometimes, um, but how many pills do you take a day currently? I'm just curious. Mm. Um, meds I take fewer of, but I take about 30 pills a day. That's incredible. Oh my God. Yeah. Do you take, do you take Tacro? I sure do. Do you? Yep. Tacro and my Fortic. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. That's something else. I just, I think it's completely wild. I, so like the one part when you were talking in your podcast, the one thing that I thought was incredible perspective was when you were saying you find out who your donor is, right. Mm -hmm. Or kind of, you find out the age, go ahead and like, I, I don't, I don't know if Danielle's heard this yet, but Oh yeah. And neither is anyone else. So tell tell everyone how you like. It's like the best story. It is the best story. So tell them oh, like why. Yeah, like why you find your donor and like how you find out and stuff. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting because pre-transplant, I was like, I want one of those Hallmark moments. I want to show up to the donor family with the Build-A-Bear that has the heartbeat inside that I can give to them. And like, we become friends, you know, that's really the magical moment that I wanted. Um, And, you know, after all the complications that happened initially, I started really sort of resenting that idea and feeling like, how could I, how could I, first of all, be grateful because I feel like I'm much sicker than I was when I entered the hospital. Yeah. And second of all, like, how could I meet that family with anything but that gratitude? Um, Mm -hmm. Because it just didn't seem fair to reach out to someone's loved ones and say like, Hey, thanks for the gift, but I'm also still kind of really pissed about it. (laughs) And so then after the second episode of bradycardia happened and we put in the pacemaker, I was especially feeling like, okay, something's wrong. Like there, now it's not just that like, you know, there was this fluke that happened in surgery. Like this Mm -hmm. should never have happened to begin with. And so I started researching and I was trying to find out like, what can contribute to complete heart block? Is it, you know, ischemic time? Did the heart, uh, cause it came, you know, it, it was on a plane. So I knew it came from further away. Um, yeah. you know, did it have to do with, uh, the age of the donor or, you know, some preexisting condition? Cause I had been otherwise healthy beforehand. I, you know, I really mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, in multi-organ failure or, or things that my friends have been in pre-transplant. Yeah. Um, and so I started researching because I knew my team wasn't going to tell me anything, mostly because they can't. Um, yeah. And it turns out that uh, on UNOS's website, there is a data bank um, that's supposed to be fairly anonymous, but where you can basically cross compare um, different populations um, and different organ procurement centers and different therapy centers. And I basically kind of Nancy drew it so that like, I found out because I was the only B negative patient at my center in the year 2016 between the ages of 18 and 25. Um, it meant that anything else that lined up with those boxes had to be true. Okay. And so essentially it turned out that when I was cross comparing that set of data to donor age, there was only one check mark in the box for 50 to 56 that lined up like that, like no other age lined up with me. And at that point, I I think it was like 11 PM, like a weekday. And I'm like sitting in my room alone and I just start sobbing. Yeah. Um, Because pissed. Yeah. Cause I'm pissed. And, and I felt like, I mean, part of the story too, is that when I got the call, I had been told um, that the donor was middle-aged and I never thought middle-aged would mean 50 to 56. Yeah. Right. And so my first reaction was like, okay, this is why, like, this is why they, they chose the wrong heart. Um, and that was so hard to sit with because so much of the expectation of, of Oregon recipients is that you have this sort of unadulterated gratitude for being alive and for getting Mm -hmm. another chance. And there's so many people who die on the waiting list. Um, but for me, my motivation at that point was like, okay, look, there's nothing we can do about me. Like, I don't, I don't have a failing heart anymore. We're not going to relist. Um, you know, we have a pacemaker, so therapeutically I'm okay, but how can we make it so that nobody else has to go through what I went through? Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of confronted my doctors about it for a lack of a better term. And, you know, the feedback I got back was, 
you know, this field is growing. It's only been around for 50 years Mm -hmm. and we have started taking donors who otherwise would be, you know, you know, hearts that would otherwise be thrown away because besides maybe that one factor, they're perfectly good and it looked perfectly good and it functioned well initially. And, you know, it came down to the fact that like, there was no way to have found this issue, um, Mm -hmm. you know, during recovery. And so it's sort of this catch 22 situation, right. Of, you know, me still being grateful to be alive and wanting to advocate for others, but still grieving the fact that like my story didn't turn out how everyone wanted it to. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And in your perfect world, what I'm not going to say, I'm not going to ask like, if I say in your perfect world, how would it it have gone? I'm not going to say like that you would have gotten a 24 year old heart. Like I'm not going to give you that option. But how could your healthcare team have responded better to? Would you have wanted to know the truth about your heart prior? You know, to figuring out figuring it out by yourself alone at 11 o'clock at night by you know Nancy yeah. drewing it, or mm-hmm. like what could they have done better to make this easier on you? Or do you think it worked out how it it should have? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's interesting. So, you know, as we were talking about mental health earlier, I'm still totes in therapy and a huge believer Mm -hmm. in it. Me too. Same. All of us are. (laughs) We are. We all love therapy. Yeah. Literally the best. And what I've been separating out about my identity now is I kind of sit in three buckets. And the first is Leilani as a patient. Um, Leilani is an advocate and then Leilani is a person. Mm-hmm. And so I think to answer your question, it's good. It turned out this way for Leilani as an advocate, right? Like I have this mm-hmm. backstory. There's so many different things about the process I could delve into, whether it's, um, you know, how, you know, shares this data or how we're testing donors at time of procurement or, you know, how we're advocating for better communication. Um, yeah. in terms of Leilani as the patient, uh, you know, it's made me a better advocate for myself. And I now have this really close relationship with my providers and they know how I like to be um, communicated to, and they know what kind of information I need to make decisions. Um, But Leilani is a person like, you know, part of me wishes it went another way. Part of me knows it's, it's made me who I am. I mean, I, I always use the example of like my friends with CF, most of them say they wouldn't trade it because they are who they are because of CF. Um, and I really feel similarly, but you know, like you said, I I think if I look back at the experience as a whole and if I couldn't change anything about the donor or the heart itself, I wish that I would have been believed a little sooner. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it shouldn't have taken five months to diagnose heart block. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, initially my syncope was written off as possibly, um, you know, related to high blood pressure or, you know, I was dehydrated or whatnot. Cause you can't have a vasovagal response after transplant. Cause that right. nerve is severed. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think to answer your question, it would have been better to, to just have truly informed consent. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think if I'd been told that the donor was 52, uh, before transplant, it would have upset me but I think it would have given the opportunity to have my team talk to me about why that was a heart worth taking anyway. Yeah. And then you could have asked more questions too. Like, 
what state is this heart in? Did, did they have a healthy life? Does he have any um, heart issues? You know, so you could be more informed yeah. about what you're getting. But then also there's the whole, you only have like a certain amount of time to right. get this heart in that is still viable. And if you don't want it, then someone else will take it too. So it's like, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine that that journey just well, I'm I'm in awe of you. <laughs> yeah. I am too. I I you know, I think about what position or what I would do if it were me and of course, you never know until you're in the actual position. Mm-hmm. I do feel like I am a person that's always searching for reason and structure and whatever in life in general. So I would probably want every last detail so I could create some sort of reason as to like why this is happening to me. Um, But I don't expect every other person to be that way. Um, But I think I would have a similar response as you did, you know, because it's nice to have an answer. Mm -hmm. But um, something that really hit me and you don't really have to respond to it if you don't want to, but um, you know, theoretically, the heart is all when when you have patients who are donating their organs they always ask you know can we donate the heart like that's the biggest thing when i've taken care of people in the icu who are going through possible organ donation the family always wants to know can we donate the heart they don't care about it's just as mentioned you know in the podcast a little bit uh that you were on but they don't really care about the lungs and the eyeballs and the tissue and whatever, but they always want to know if they can pass along the heart because mm-hmm. theoretically, you know, I feel the same way. It's, it's, there's, it's not science, you know, but it is like art and uh, humanity to want to pass along the heart of somebody that you loved or that person, mm-hmm. because you feel like you're, you like know, that's like where the soul lives on in. Exactly. Yeah. You're transporting like the soul box in someone to another person. And Mm -hmm. so it makes families feel better about the loss of their loved one. And in the podcast, they said this line that you were trying to heal yourself. Um, and it was something like you were trying to heal yourself. And so you were thinking about the life that the person lived who had your heart before you. Um, but you couldn't, you know, heal that life. Like if that, I don't know if that was something that was just said in the podcast or if you had actually Mm -hmm. said that to them, but like, you were like, they were saying, was this heart, did this person go through divorce? Did this person have heartbreak? Was this person happy? You know, like you can't heal Mm -hmm. that heart and heal your own, you know? And I just thought that that was like a really extraordinary perspective. So that's so heavy. (laughs) It's so heavy. It's so heavy. It's like crazy, but yeah. Um, I, I think that came from probably a discussion we had while recording, but yeah, I completely agree. And and that's why I feel this mix of like, I don't know, maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's like, I, I don't know. It's just like, it, part of me wants, wants that Hallmark experience, right? I think that's what's supposed mm-hmm, to be so healing. Um, and then, you know, you want to there's a lot of talk in the community about living for your donor and taking them with you and, you know, showing them things they may not have been able to see. Um, and I think that's beautiful and artistic and coming from that kind of a background, I totally identify Mm -hmm. with this sentiment, Mm -hmm. but it's also such a huge burden to place on somebody else to expect them to live life for two people and Mm -hmm. to do everything right. I mean, I think 
when living for one is hard enough sometimes. (laughs) I was going to say, I can hardly make it myself and I haven't had a freaking heart transplant, you know? So yeah, no, totally. And then there's like the piece of did, you know, part of me died that day. Like my heart died the same day as my donor. Um, What does that mean for my identity? And, you know, obviously the, who I was with HCM is very different than who I am now. Um, And I, I think I'm still grieving that a little bit. Yeah, of course. I oh my God, totally I can't so even imagine. So what are you doing now and what is your role and your your mission? Yeah, so since all this went down, I mean I had previously been um in entertainment and then I was in tech and uh you know, once this sort of life changing for lack of a better term. Yeah, uh, event, <laughs> yeah a little bit. Um happened, I yeah, I, I transitioned into my full-time job was just to be a patient and to, to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true of everyone who gets a transplant because you are doing med checks every yep. three hours, you know, you're constantly monitoring your weight and your intake and whatnot. Um, but you know, I started to feel empowered telling my story and, you know, I was, I was asked to do so in a way that was beyond tokenism. Cause before I'd kind of, you know, showed up to things with HCM being kind of the kid who had the disease and, you know, who's still doing all these things. And it was great for fundraisers and and whatnot. And I'm still happy to Mm -hmm. do that. Um, but I was starting to be asked about my experience in a way that felt impactful. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was asked to consult on things and, um, to, bring in fellow patients and to talk about why we might be trying to change the standard of care. And that felt like a perfect outlet for all of this pain and grief and um, difficulty that I had had suffered because again, it it was helping to make sure no other patient had to go through what I went through. Um, So along those lines, I decided to transition into healthcare full-time and now I'm director of patient advocacy um, at Clara Health. And we are a company that helps patients find clinical trials. Oh, um, wow. Oh. Yeah. So it's working with patients who similarly, um, you know, are in really dire situations or maybe it's their caregivers who are searching. Um, mm-hmm. it's personally, it's good for me, I think, because it's a little, it's a little bit removed. Um, you know, I've yeah. been in many, many research studies, but I've never been in a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so I think it would be a little tougher if I were working like a transplant procurement right. organization that might exactly be yeah <laughs> for sure um but yeah we're able to work uh with patients to help them find the right trial completely at no cost to them um so that feels like doing good work that's so beautiful. yeah that's incredible yeah uh did you how did you find that position um so interestingly i had really gotten ingrained with the social media, like the hashtag so me of, of, um, medicine and had been interacting with the American Heart Association over Twitter, had been interacting with, um, you know, Medtronic and, and other, uh, device groups. And this woman who was my predecessor at Clara had, had tweeted basically saying, you know, who are the patient advocates I need to get to know in San Francisco? And I responded, um, and she and I built this great friendship. I consulted for them for almost over a year. And then when she was ready to transition, she said, look, I know you've been in technology. I know you've been in entertainment, but it seems like you've been doing all of these speaking engagements and this consulting work and Mm -hmm. you shine in this. And, you know, I would really like you to consider uh, coming on board. 
and it ended up being a really great fit. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! That's like so <laughs> awesome. Like you're like you're like the quintessential like millennial, and I mean that as a compliment. That you like <laughs> hustled and like find this job through freaking Twitter, basically, and you've worked like for the, Google. The one good side of Twitter, <laughs> right? Like I just I wish you could just run my blog on the side or something. Like you're like you're so cool. Like you like know all these like cool things. So that's that's amazing that you've like found a position that can fit your fit your life, you know, is this transplant fulfillment and help people. Like it's perfect. So yeah, it definitely feels really great. Thanks guys. Yeah. (laughs) I also have one more selfish question. Did you, did you have any nurses who really touched your life by chance? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, my pre-transplant nurse, I knew her for about 10 years, I think. I mean, my family was really, we're one of the first at our center to undergo genetic testing for HCM. Turns mm-hmm. out both my parents have the gene. Whoa. Um, oh. Yeah. They each have a separate gene. Oh though. my God. Wow. Yeah. And so I got both, which is why my case is so okay. severe. Yeah. Um, and so we'd been really close with the team anyway, because they were like, you guys are the, the perfect Sample size. Um, <laughs> nerd alert. Let us learn yeah, from you. Nerd, yeah, nerd exactly. alert. We're like, Let you me know? look at your genes. All right. <laughs> Basically. Um, but so I'd grown really close with my pre-transplant nurse. And, you know, she she was there for me every day in the hospital. She came and visited, even though I was technically no longer, you know, part of her clinic or her service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're actually really close friends now and we go hiking together and have wine nights and, um, all of that great stuff. And then, you know, when I was in the ICU, which was a new experience for me really. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, the step down ICU, I mean, the, the only good parts of that experience were the nurses for sure. I mean, I remember one who was about to go on mat leave and, you know, the day before the day before she was to go on mat leave, she was already like eight months, three weeks, something. Um, you know, she brought in like ice cream cupcakes for me, even though I was definitely on a high insulin dose, but she made it work. <laughs> she, just upped, she upped your insulin a little bit for that. A little yeah, bit. It was exactly. worth the happiness. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, you know, beautiful. I follow a lot of my ICU nurses um, on Instagram. They follow me and I've met them for coffee since. I mean, these are mostly women, a couple men, um, but who have had a profound impact in how I view healthcare in, you know, working through the PTSD of that whole experience. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for them because, you know, they were able to provide solace for not only myself, but my family. And, um, you know, unfortunately I've had to be back on the unit just for the, the pacemaker. And, I remember walking around the unit right before I was about to have that surgery. And my favorite nurse from my time a year before had just come back from her mat leave. And it just, it felt so reassuring. I see. And uh, yeah, I was really grateful. What, what could we do better? Like in what instances do you feel like we could be better? Mm -hmm. Which I know there are lots and I'm, you know, I know that nurses are great and healthcare is great and blah, blah, blah. But honest to God, like, what could we do better from a patient's perspective? Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's mostly just uh, remembering that your your patient is a person um, is probably the better way to say it. Like, just that there are many times where I think I was being talked at or talked about that I actually really mm. remember. Um mm. 
but I think just continuing to be the best advocate for the patient. There were many times where, you know, my nurses were like, Hey, you know, I don't think you need to be on this Lido drip anymore, but they didn't feel empowered to say that to the attending. Um, and fortunately there were residents there who were like, Oh yeah, you should, you should totally tell that to the attending. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I really feel like my nurses didn't have many problems. I mean, just the one time that like, I really wanted to be knocked out and she didn't really understand that I was trying to sleep, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but apart from that, no, I, I think that echoes across healthcare though. I mean, there are many times where I've had to build up that relationship with my either nurse coordinators or NPs or even, um, attendings to feel like I was a valid partner in my care. Um, so I think this can be true for any sort of clinician is approaching the patient already. Like they're a partner rather than like a designee of this kind of care. Um, because it, improves health literacy for the patient. It increases buy-in. Um, it increases compliance because you both agree about the care plan. Um, so I think it just leads to better outcomes. Yeah. That's a really good point. That makes complete sense. Well, I don't know, Leilani, you're, you're a special gal. I tell you, I, I, I'm just like so blown away by you. What do you, um, like what, what am I trying to say here? What do you feel, I guess, what are your, maybe your biggest fears for the future and your, and what are you looking forward to? Mm, that's a good one. It's a really good one, Dee. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, um, my biggest, like healthcare specific fears are, you know, rejection, requiring retransplant. I mean, currently the average is 12 years for a heart. Um, I know a woman who's lived 35 years with the same heart. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah. She's incredible. Um, she was actually the first pediatric heart transplant in the U S. Um, but then I know a little boy in Utah who's four years old and is currently listed for his third transplant. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it ranges so much. So, so that's a fear of course, Cancer is probably an inevitability because of the immunosuppressants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think I can speak for a lot of transplant patients when I say that we feel like we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. Yeah. Um, but more existentially, I'm, I'm fearful that I won't make the impact that I want to while I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I won't be able to do all the things and see all the things. And I definitely feel a lot more pressure now to to live life more fully because I never know if, if tomorrow I'm going to wind up back at the hospital. Um, but I think I'm most looking forward to the change that's coming. I mean, I think as a community, we've been saying healthcare is broken for the last, you know, at least the last five years that I've been really ingrained in it. And I think people are starting to propose the right solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really excited about where precision medicine is going because that's really the only thing that, can help me long-term in terms of survival, in terms of, you know, possibly child planning, um, all of the Mm -hmm. the kinds of things that I want to do in this full life that I desire, but right now are really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that seems completely reasonable to me. And if there's ever anything that we can do to help you make the impact that you want to make, you know, don't hesitate to reach out because- 
I mean, we hope we'd to get love bigger. To help you. <laughs> yeah, we'd love, love to help you, you in any way. And I just think you're, I think you're, I think you're great. I think we've all established that so far that I think Leilani is great. So <laughs> well, I've only said that 50 times. So I do have a little bit more of like a spiritual side question. Yeah. Because I'm always so curious. Like, I think everyone's kind of curious. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever, in any of the times that you've coded, mm-hmm. had any sort of like out of body experiences or seen the proverbial light that people like talk about or... I'm just, I'm just very, very curious. (laughs) I am. I am too. Yeah. No, it's a good question. I think my answer might be a little bit of a letdown. Um, No, you're fine. You know, I'm just, I was not, my, my mother was raised like, you know, not even really Christian kind of atheist, but did Christmas and my father was raised Jewish, but I wasn't raised religiously Mm -hmm. and I've always been spiritual, but, um, you know, I think for me, it's not so much that I saw anything or had any visions or whatnot, but I definitely feel more imbued with this sense of kind of humanity. I don't, I just, Mm -hmm. there's this sense in me that like things have a greater purpose. Um, I mean, I feel that way sometimes when I talk to people my age who are like, Oh, I can't afford to pay rent or like my boyfriend broke up with me. And you know, those are not small things. Um, Mm -hmm. but to me, I kind of, I just have this sense that like life is so brief and so short and, um, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's just sort of this like overarching meaning for me that I, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have had, had I not, you know, face death so many times. And I, th- I think that the positive thing is I don't have a fear of death anymore. I just have a fear yeah. of dying and suffering, um, yeah. because I've been there and I've seen it so much and I'm, you know, a huge believer in hospice and palliative care and, you know, mm-hmm. stopping treatment when you need to. But yeah, I think that's more of a vibe that's come out of all those experiences. Yeah. I honestly think that's like the perfect description of spirituality. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, like it's not organized religion to Mm-mm. me. No. It's exactly what you just said. Like just mm-hmm. like a realm or a feeling or, you know, I don't know. It's hard to find words to put it, you know, to s- express it. But to but me, that's yeah. exactly, exactly the definition. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause I think without that, like what's the point? And, and that's totally Mm -hmm. hit me. I mean, when I'd been really depressed or feeling like, you know, there's just like, what is the point of me going through all this suffering and my family suffering with me? Um, like that's the thing that gets you through it is thinking that there has to be some, um, some greater purpose for it. And to what degree that's religious, I think is up to the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So big D I don't know if you're familiar with the, well, big nurse D energy, but it's big Danielle energy. Um, but we just love to hear from our guests, um, any moments that happened in their lives or like in the last week or, or day even that made them feel like empowered or proud or just like really strong in who they were. Mm, I love that question. I mean, I think as it relates to my story, and I think you guys will love this, um, you know, when we started trying to figure out what was causing the heart block, I Uh advocated for genetic testing. Um, And my team was like, Leilani, 
we know that you had gene markers before, but like most heart diseases don't have that. So like, we're not going to find anything. Um, but like, why not up, look anyways? <laughs> why not look? <laughs> and, uh, we, we ended up testing and we found something. Um, wow. and you know, we're not sure yet if it's a total culprit. Um, but my team came together and they were like, thank you for doing this because, you know, we think we should maybe be, um, be looking into genetic causes and, you know, maybe we should be talking to other teams about how often this happens. Um, because I'm not the only one who's inherited some heart disease from the donor. Um, I'm sure that's true of other organs too. Yeah. And so, they're, they were like, we want you on the research team. Uh, we want you to giving us feedback, um, and be like really involved in this process. You're amazing. She is. That's so awesome. All day long. That's so awesome. (laughs) Thanks guys. That's so freaking awesome. You're so powerful and just, uh, girl, you are, you're meant to be here to do some amazing things in this world. Like you've, You've touched me. I know you've touched me. Oh my God. We all know you've touched me. (laughs) You're freaking amazing. Like, I just have no doubt that you will fulfill your purpose to the extent that you are content with it. I have no doubt. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Feels like continuing to tell this story. And, you know, maybe that's a book someday. I got to work on the book deal. But, oh, yeah, you do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you do. A book deal. Yeah. If there's any publishers <laughs> listening to this, this story needs to be told, even if it if it's like a Hallmark Christmas, a heart for Christmas or something, yeah. you know, yes, a Valentine, a, a heart for Valentine's Day. Yes. Like, <laughs> Valentine's know. Day, the day I died. Oh, wait, did you get your heart transplant on Valentine's Day or did you die Valentine's no. Day? No, the ECMO came out on Valentine's Day. Oh, dang Day. it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. So close. <laughs> dang it. All right. Well, those are, they can create, they can use creative liberties. Creative license. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's a great, that's a great de-energy moment if I ever yeah. heard one. Yeah. <laughs> You're so badass. She is. She is. Back at you, ladies. Well, we have nothing that compares to that, I'm sure. No. Uh, I really don't. What am, what am I even proud of myself for? Like, I don't know. I have one for both of us. Oh, please. Then say it. Good. Okay. The woman. I mean, like, after this, we'll be, we'll be above this point. But the woman hit a hundred thousand downloads, and I am blown. Oh my god! I'm blown the away. I am too. <laughs> I'm actually shocked, but yeah. I'm really happy. I'm and really like, happy. So over the moon. Did not think that like this would be the case. I'm just hum- humbled, and I I can't wait to like Danny and I can't wait to bring you more content and and just be be a voice we like thank you for loving on our voices and our hearts and and bringing the woman to you guys so yeah likewise what she said <laughs> <laughs> what she said i'm thrilled and well thank you guys for including patience too i mean because yeah no one out there is, is doing a podcast like this but you guys are being so holistic and really like talking to all the different aspects of healthcare and life. So from the patient side, we really appreciate it. 
Oh, that thank means you so much. Feel free to give us feedback too, and tell yeah. us, you know, tell us what you want to hear more of, like especially yeah. you specifically, Leilani, since you're consulting <laughs> for pretty much everyone at this point. So yeah, like def- <laughs> definitely tell us. Uh, we need, we all need to hear it. Um, can Leilani- can our listener? Oh, sorry, D, go ahead. Um, well, I think it was probably what you were about to say, but um, can you tell our listeners like where they can follow you, hear about more about your journey? Um, you know, if, if that's something that you want, you know? Totally. Yeah. Um, you can find me on any social media at Leilani R. Graham. Um, it's made it super easy for you. Um, and I've actually done a lot of writing about the experience and you can find that on my blog, which is awesome. calculatedrisk.net. Oh, oh that's, that name. that's perfect. <laughs> that name is baller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we will be sure to include that. Um, you can check our Instagram out at the WOMED and we'll have all the links to Leilani's blog and her social media channels that you can follow her on and, and get all the information. <laughs> yep. Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're, you're awesome. Truly. Thanks for having me, guys. You're, you're, so Markle, you're awesome. <laughs> you are. You are. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find us on anywhere you want to listen to podcasts and check out our Twitter, our Instagram at the WOMED and like, subscribe, rate, review, all the things you do. WOMED out. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.